Welcome everybody to this to this uh, special public lecture. Um, it's it's a great honour to be to be doing this and um, to be introducing Alex. I will I will say a little bit about Alex in just a second, but um, I first wanted to sort of explain uh, the sort of the way in which we want to conduct this and a few sort of for information things. So um, the talk has been recorded. Um, and so Robin has set um, the cameras and mics uh, to muted, um, except thankfully mine and Alex's. Well, thankfully Alex's isn't muted. Um, and that will be like that for the duration of the talk. And then she will unmute people's mics. So, but please keep them off for the, for the discussion until I call on you. Um, the way I'll do it is, um, so the, the, the questions are not gonna be recorded. Um, just so, that, so you don't need to worry about that. Um, the way in which we'll do we will do the questions is um, if you can type in the chat that you have a question. Um, that's the preferred route, and then that will give me a sense of who, the order, and I will call on you in that order, and then you can unmute yourself um, and put your camera on if you want, so that we can have a chat. Um, if you prefer me to read out the question, then write it in the chat, um, and that's and that's perfectly acceptable. Well, I'll I'll say this again in in, in just a minute. Uh, sorry, at the end of at the end of the talk. Um, so it's it's really great that uh, to have Alex here uh, tonight, this afternoon, um, in in the US, uh, various other points of the day, wherever you else you are, um, Alex. Uh, is the Clara L. West Professor of Ethics and Philosophy and um, the Director of the Centre for Ethics and Policy at Carnegie Mellon University. Um, he has recently got a lot of attention, I think you would describe this as a lot of attention, Alex, for your paper with Jonathan Kimmel Kimmelman on Against Pandemic Research Except Exceptionism, which was in Science in 2020. Um, but he's in, in the sort of research ethics community and bioethics community, very well known and very well thought about. So it's great that he's here to talk about his new book. Um, I'll hand it over to Alex uh, and shut up. Thank you very much. All right, well, uh, thank you, um, Mark, uh, for that generous introduction and for inviting me to be here. And, and also thanks for Robin for all her help helping me navigate Microsoft Teams, which I am I'm not really used to doing. Um, I'm gonna try to talk for, uh, aim for about 40 minutes or so. Uh, and then hopefully that will leave us plenty of time for um, questions and uh, answers. Um, <clears throat> so the, the topic for the talk today is justice and the egalitarian research imperative. And the egalitarian research imperative is a um, sort of a, a, a central feature of my book, For the Common Good, The Philosophical Foundations of Research Ethics that was just published by Oxford University Press and, and it's, it's free and open access. Uh, the PDF is if you want to um, download it from uh, Oxford or from my homepage. So I, I'm gonna try to do uh, three things today. Um, the first is talk about the parochialism uh, of research ethics, of orthodox research ethics, uh, where it comes from both um, mostly conceptually, uh, a bit historically, and, and how it really eviscerates the role for justice uh, in research ethics. And uh, after that first part of the talk, uh, I'll then, and, and in the first part, I want to show how that has a really pernicious um, effect on what I'll call the cognitive ecosystem of research ethics, which is sort of the way questions get framed, what what views are are, are taken as being central, what it would require to answer uh, a question, the kinds of concepts, the, who the stakeholders are, um, who are seen as being central. After that early part of the talk, then I'll transition to talking about the egalitarian research imperative, and I'll argue that there is a research imperative. There's an imperative to carry out research with humans. Um, it's very different from the kind of imperative that you'll see that shaped the uh, the historical origins of research ethics. And after that section, then I'll talk a little bit about what the implications uh, are uh, of this sort of new approach to the foundations of research ethics. So the first part is the origins of this parochialism, as I want to call it. 
So I think it's really important to see that in the United States, at least, um, the birth of research ethics was really driven uh, by a reaction against two things. So first, there was a shared perception that there is an inherent dilemma at the heart of research with human participants. And the fundamental problem was how to navigate this dilemma. And there was a fear that an imperative to carry out research that was grounded in a social imperative would wind up justifying the abrogation of the rights and interests of individuals. So that's what I want to try to show um, in this first section. I'm trying to uh, you know, motivate and, and, and persuade you of this idea. And then um, after I do that, we'll see some of the implications of this. So um, the, uh, part of what I want to say when I argue at length in the book is that you know, the conceptual ecosystem of orthodox research ethics is really narrow. It treats research as a kind of private transaction between two main stakeholders, researchers and study participants. It centers protectionism and paternalism. So the, the, the uh, moral crucible uh, of research ethics takes place at the interface between researchers and participants. And the main focus for research ethics in terms of an audience is usually the IRB, whose job it is to kind of paternalistically manage the relationship between these two stakeholders. It primarily treats research as a kind of functional role. That's a, a role like the doctor-patient relationship or like the role of the doctor. There's the role of the researcher. Um, so the functional role, it's something that you can take on uh, and that can conflict with other social roles. And that really ignores the degree to which research is a social undertaking between a lot of different stakeholders. Um, and so we'll see how, why that's important later on. It also disconnects research from a bunch of larger social purposes. Um, part of how justice then gets disconnected in research from uh, how research ethics sort of is uh, disconnected from uh, issues of justice and uh, in particular, issues of justice in this larger social context. So those, those are the themes to keep your eye out for now as I try to persuade you of each of these ideas in this first part. So I want to take you back to the, the heady days of April 1967, uh, you know, this meeting uh, called the, about the changing mores of biomedical research and this whole held at the American College of Physicians. So um, you know, this is at the time right before the institution uh, of the common rule, the creation of the common rule in the United States, um, uh, when there's disagreement about what the norms should be for governing biomedical and behavioral research. And in his opening remarks, the famous um, uh, researcher, Walsh McDermott, opens with this bombshell. He says, when the needs of society come into head-on conflict with the rights of an individual, somebody has to play God. And the whole point of uh, McDermott's uh, remarks uh, is that um, society enforces the social good over the individual good in a wide range of contexts. And there's an inherent dilemma in um, research with human subjects. We can't both advance the social good and respect the good of the individual. And in that case, researchers need to be empowered to advance the social good, even if it comes at the cost of the individual participant. So he's, here's this prescient or this sort of, um, you know, um, particular quote where he says, starting, I suppose, with the yellow fever studies in Havana, a famous set of studies by the um, um, uh, renowned American um, researcher, Walter Reed, um, we have seen large social payoffs from certain experiments in humans, and there's no reason to doubt that this process could continue. However, then he says, once this demonstration was made, we could no longer maintain in strict honesty that in the study of disease, the interests of the individual are invariably paramount. So part of what McDermott is taking, uh, you know, in his sites here, uh, is a declaration of Helsinki that has as one of its claims that the interests of the individual, you know, uh, have to be, and the physician's concern for the interests of the individual have to be paramount. Um, he says, I believe that it's been most unwise to try to extend the principle of a government of laws and not of men into areas of such great ethical subtlety as clinical investigation. So, um, 
McDermott, I give you this as a way of just trying to say uh, there was a view uh, before the institution, sort of the current, uh, before the creation of the current institutions, rules and regulations in the United States, there was a view that there was a social imperative to carry out research, that that imperative was grounded in the great social benefits that research could create. And it rested on a particular view of the relationship between society and the individual. So this is another quote from McDermott. Um, you know, he says society has rights, too, and it is preferable that the power to enforce these rights over the rights of the individual be institutionalized. And then he talks about how it's important that to ensure the rights of society, um, an arbitrary judgment must sometimes be made against an individual. And this is it takes you back to the, the head, the quote that he the statement that he used to open the conference that researchers should be empowered to make that arbitrary judgment sometime in order to advance the right of society. Now, part of the problem with the way McDermott frames the issue and, the, and, and you know, the, the, the sort of in a certain sense, one of the refreshing things about McDermott is that unlike other famous researchers of the day, he says the quiet part out loud when a lot of other people are content to kind of beat around the bush. Um, but, you know, McDermott's comments really echo Arguments that we saw at the Nuremberg trial not that many years earlier, just a few decades earlier. And, you know, in the, the Nuremberg trial, Servatius, Robert Servatius had argued, the attorney had argued on behalf of um, one of the defendants, Dr. Carl Brandt, that there was no meaningful distinction between conscription for military service and research, that in each case, uh, individual sacrifice is required for the common good. And it's not unreasonable to exact even the ultimate sacrifice from a person if that's necessary to advance the greater good. Um, there were seven of the 23 defendants at Nuremberg were sentenced to death uh, for crimes against humanity, including Carl Brandt. And one of the things that Brandt said, you know, he said science under the in, you know, um, within science under the Nazi regime, the demands of society were placed above every individual human being as an entity. And this entity, the human being, became completely used in the interests of that society. So you can sort of see Nuremberg uh, as a repudiation of this idea. But of course, you know, the, the Nuremberg and the Nuremberg Code had very little in direct influence on sort of the course of, of research and research ethics in the United States up until the period that we're that, that we're talking about. So shortly after McDermott's um, fiery opening, uh, Jonas publishes his groundbreaking paper, rightly influential. Um, so, I, you know, I think any most people who take a research ethics class probably have to read at least some, if not all of this paper. And in it, Jonas makes this it's really fascinating argument. He says society easily survives the normal toll of sickness and disease. And so as a result, sickness and disease really is a threat to the individual, not to society. And so for that reason, Jonas argues there's no social imperative to carry out research. It's a noble private vocation like being a musician. And if you're a musician, you might bring joy, you know, and pleasure to the lives of, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of people if you're if you're famous like Yo-Yo Ma or something like that. Um, but it isn't the case that you can use the institutions and the coercive power of society in order to promote this private undertaking. In order to avoid the kind of totalitarian consequences that Jonas saw in the position that McDermott was articulating, um, as he wants to demote research from an activity that serves the social good, the interests of society, to an activity that serves the interests of individuals and that becomes a kind of private optional undertaking. So what you see here now, so I, what, this, this piece I keep coming back to, so some of you will, will know, this is the front piece to Hobbes's Leviathan. So this is the state, right? And then what looks like, you know, it's chain mail is actually little tiny you know, images of, of individuals who comprise the state. And so we have two very different views. We, we have the same 
conception of the relationship between the individual and the state, between the individual and the collective. But we have two different conceptions now of the relative interests at stake. On the one hand, you have McDermott, who says society has rights and it can exact a toll uh, from some of its, you know, skin cells, as it were, uh, in order to produce uh, medical progress through um, research with human participants. On the other side, you have Jonas, who says, you know, cancer, if cancer, heart disease and other organic non-contagious ills, especially those tending to strike the old more than the young, continue to exact their toll at the normal rate of incidence, including the toll of private anguish and misery, society can go on flourishing in every way. So society has no no concern about the the normal rate of disease that sort of pluck off individuals here and there. And so the, so society um, doesn't have a legitimate claim to use its coercive force in order to promote the kind of progress that medical research promotes. Interestingly, on this position now, um, if you have a pandemic uh, like we're in now, uh, like, you know, with COVID, then it can be the case that, um, you know, if the proper functioning of society is endangered, then both of these views would line up, uh, right? Then I think then in his article, Jonas talks about um, how it might be the case then that in its emergency powers, um, society can take steps uh, to preserve itself that, that, that fall much more closely into the line that, that uh, McDermott is running. And I, I'll suggest later, I think that is also part of a problem here. So um, so Jonas's paper comes out in 1969. During this time in the United States, the Tuskegee syphilis study is happening. This is the United States public health study of 400 black men with syphilis and 200 controls in Alabama. It involves deception, denial of treatment. No measures are deployed to stop the spread of a communicable disease that the public health service has a social obligation to, um, to, you know, to stop the spread and to control. In 1969, there's a blue ribbon panel that is convened to review the study and with, but with all but one uh, dissent, it votes unanimously to continue the study until it breaks into the headlines and the, um, and the popular press grab hold of it. And the scandal leads to the creation of the National Commission for the Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research. And the, the National Commission is what creates the, the common rule and, the, and the, the whole set of institutions and guidelines and rules that we that, that constitute orthodox research ethics today. Actually, the, the, the National Commission produced the Belmont report that we'll talk about in a little bit. The, the historical point here is relevant because. Tuskegee shifts the balance almost entirely in favor of Jonas's position. Kind of hand in glove now, the work of the National Commission, there's a kind of administrative convenience. We want to try to make some rules that would prevent this kind of um, systematic abuse um, is as simply and easily as we can. And so Jonas's philosophical position gives the conceptual philosophical cover for this position that's motivated by administrative convenience to some degree. So um, without a social imperative, research is sort of treated now as a kind of optional undertaking and everything gets focused on what I call the IRB triangle now. So our rulemaking talks about um, uh, researchers, the relationships to participants, and how the IRB is going to insert itself in this relationship in order to protect participants from abuse at the hands of researchers. So this is where you get now um, in this in, in this administrative convenience, you get research treated as a functional role because we need to know when are individuals functioning as physicians and when are they functioning as researchers so we know which set of moral requirements um, should govern their conduct. Uh, so so the, you know, the, the Belmont report, you know, and um, subsequent rulemaking enunciate criteria to distinguish when an individual is occupying one social role rather than another. So we talk about, do you, you know, is your purpose to fulfill your fiduciary duty to the patient who's in front of you? Or are you trying to gather generalizable uh, data? Um, what are the means that you're using? Are you using established effective means to benefit your patient? Are you deploying novel interventions under conditions such as randomization that are designed to evaluate efficacy? And, and then what kind of discretion do you have 
you know, if you're in this fiduciary role where you're providing treatment, you have broad latitude to use your professional judgment to to advance the interests of the patient in front of you. But if you're if you're in this information generating role, then you're required to secure prospective research review. So part of what this does, though, this this framing of the ethical issues as living within the IRB triangle, it eviscerates any role for the for the value of justice. Um, people, I have I've given talks in places and and had people say, I didn't realize justice was even a value that was in the Belmont report. Um, is one of the key values in the Belmont report, but it's the least well-developed. Um, and in the conceptual ecosystem uh, of orthodox research ethics, justice really has no distinctive role to play. Um, if, you're, if you have the background assumption that we're talking about private parties in a way that's tacitly disconnected from larger social purposes, and from other social institutions other than the IRB, um, uh, then there's not really much work for justice to do. Um, I'd say, well, um, I went in the wrong direction. Uh, you might say, well, that's that's a little bit unfair, but we can look at an example from the Belmont report to try to um, drive this point home. So, you know, so uh, within Belmont, Beneficence or justice over the same domain, and in a certain sense, at the bottom line, they, they do effectively the same thing. Um, when justice is introduced, we're told, well, this is about who ought to receive the benefits of research and bear its burdens. And beneficence is ultimately about the distribution of benefits and burdens in research across different individuals. That's why it's possible when we're talking about risk benefit that the risks to some individuals can be outweighed by the possibility of benefits that will accrue to other individuals. So um, both of these values are treated as operating over the distribution of benefits and burdens to different individuals. Justice, we're told, equals ought to be treated equally. That's kind of sort of the, the conceptual definition of justice going you know, back to Aristotle at least. Uh, but there's no specification of the space of equality. So we're not told, well, what to what what space we ought to ensure that people are treated equally in. Uh, that question is left unanswered in Belmont, uh, except in beneficence. That question is answered because you give equal treatment uh, to people in the space of welfare. And that's why you're allowed to allow risks to the welfare of people in one group to be offset by um, welfare uh, to the beneficiaries of research, so long as there's enough welfare um, that that's generated. So the point I want to make is, uh, even though these view these values, uh, in, there's really not much content to the value of justice as it's articulated in Belmont, but there's pretty substantial content uh, content to the value of beneficence. So now, if you take a requirement of justice that's enunciated in the Belmont report, right? So one of them is that, you know, um, uh, that there should be a prohibition on recruiting favored populations for beneficial research and undesirable populations for risky research. Well, if you say that value is, is grounded in issues of justice, the ground is very difficult to explain from the standpoint of justice, because there's just not that much granularity or texture to the way justice is explained in the Belmont report. But you can explain uh, and justify uh, this uh, prohibition on the basis of the two other pillars uh, of uh, uh, orthodox research ethics, right? Uh, it, uh, as an application of both beneficence and autonomy. Um, because you could say, listen, if we draw primarily from marginalized groups for quote unquote risky research. Well, those are groups that are already more likely to have a higher burden of disease. Um, they're already likely to have far fewer resources available to them to manage adverse events that might arise. Um, they're more likely to have more precarious health and welfare on a general level. And so the outcomes uh, uh, of um, imposition of risk uh, on marginalized groups are likely to be worse than if you impose the same risk on less marginalized groups. So that's a straightforward application of beneficence. And then 
it's far less likely um, you're far less likely to secure consent from marginalized groups for that kind of research in the absence of force, fraud, or insufficiently informed consent. So, uh, you know, all of the things that could be seen as being wrong with um, uh, disproportionate, re disproportionately recruiting vulnerable populations can be explained by beneficence and autonomy. And it's not really clear what the substance of justice is in Belmont that would provide an alternative explanation. We really see the absence of justice then as time goes by and in the 1990s, uh, uh, you know, late 90s and then, you know, the, the subsequent decades when uh, controversies in international research come to the fore. Uh, so there are three requirements that get articulated uh, as governing uh, international research, that there should be an adequate standard of care, that, that research should be responsiveness to host community health needs and priorities, and that there's a duty to provide post-trial access. In documents like the SIOMS guidelines, these, these requirements are, are grounded in the value of justice. But without a substantive account of justice in these space, um, a number of commentators argue, you know, that these values seem, these requirements seem arbitrary. Um, and unjustified at best. And then Alan Wertheimer in some recent work has a trenchant argument where he says, you know, they're also Pareto inferior. They raise the cost of conducting research in low and middle income country populations that might benefit from research that doesn't satisfy one or more of these conditions. But not conducting research there doesn't make anybody better off. So by protecting people, uh, Wertheimer, you know, argues we could be making them worse off just by denying them opportunities to advance some of their interests, even though the research in which they're participating might be relevant to other communities um, where they might get sort of the direct benefits of participation rather than post-trial access um, and where the standard of care they receive uh, might be much lower than it would be in other places. Um, and so I think part of the controversy then that's happened about the norms that ought to govern international research uh, is the is a result of the vacuum that was created uh, by grounding these requirements on justice, but without having an actual substantive account of justice to do the work that's required. You also see now in this in this ecosystem that results, you know, the tolerance for what I've called in other places self-defeating practices. And you really see this with COVID. COVID illustrates this an asymmetric concern, the risks that participants might be exposed to in research, uh, but then a sort of, you know, there's not an offsetting concern for the widespread tolerance for uh, the use of unvalidated uh, um, uh, interventions out of beneficent intent where that doesn't necessarily translate into beneficial outcomes. You know, so this is a list of the interventions at the beginning of the pandemic that people thought maybe these things will have some therapeutic effect. Uh, you know, you see ivermectin here, you see chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. Very beginning of the pandemic, um, you know, Dieter Raut, who ran one of the first quite poorly designed studies of hydroxychloroquine, you know, in an interview, he says, I'm not going to tell somebody, listen, today's not your lucky day. You're going to be getting the placebo. You're going to be dying, um, he told the reporter. Uh, Route said he believes it unnecessary and unethical to run randomized controlled trials or RT RCTs of treatments for a deadly infectious disease. So what you see here is it's, you know, Route saying basically it would be unethical for me um, to deny people hydroxychloroquine. But of course, you have other clinicians uh, who think it would be unethical of them to provide hydroxychloroquine to patients since its efficacy hasn't really been validated. So you have a so social status, right, state of affairs in which some people are giving, you know, some clinicians are providing this intervention. Other clinicians are not providing this intervention. Um, but a bunch of people think uh, that that the risks uh, that we would be exposing people to in research if we randomize them to those interventions are somehow worse than the default state of affairs of just giving those interventions directly to people uh, without generating the information where we know whether they're efficacious or not. Um, you have other instances, you know, so people in the United States, uh, you know, when they, they ran ads, uh, some of the, this is from a consortium that was 
looking at convalescent plasma. And in their advertisements, they say, if you survived COVID-19, then you're the heroes that we need. The plasma that's in your blood can literally save lives, but we have to act fast, so please donate. So, you know, here are the assertion, basically, uh, I mean, if you go further down on this webpage I took this from, they would say, we all, you know, we want you to donate so that we can run some of the studies that might be necessary to evaluate, um, you know, the, the clinical merits of convalescent plasma. But they're basically telling you in the advertisements, hey, this can literally save lives. Well, if, it can, if we already know that, why would we need to run trials? And if we need to run trials, why are we telling people that this will save your life? Um, the results, of course, right, um, are really not very rosy. Um, clinicians used hydroxychloroquine with therapeutic intent on a large scale. Um, uh, but the recovery trial showed that, you know, among patients with COVID-19, those who received hydroxychloroquine didn't have a lower incidence of death at 28 days than those who received usual care. They did have a longer hospital duration. And then there were subpopulations that were more likely to progress um, to the outcomes of mechanical ventilation or death than people in the usual care group. It, things that weren't quite as bad with convalescent plasma, in the United States, 100,000 people received convalescent plasma outside the context of a clinical trial. Um, but it, again, recovery says there was no significant difference between convalescent plasma and uh, the usual care group. So it didn't seem like it was harmful, but it certainly absorbed the time, energy, and resources of a wide range of people um, for, for no clinical benefit. So uh, to summarize in this section then, you know, the, the aversion to linking biomedical research to important purposes of the state relegating it to a kind of private activity now that gets, that gets evaluated within the narrow confines of the IRB triangle results in this uh, ecosystem that has all these problems. You have a narrow set of stakeholders with a narrow focus on one point, right? IRB review is one point in a much larger process where many more stakeholders have already made decisions about what the protocol is going to look like, what the study is going, you know, what, what questions are going to be asked and answered. It, there's the invisibility, the knowledge that research produces and its relationship to a bunch of social systems are basically invisible within this within this um, cognitive ecosystem, other than the idea that there needs to be um, social value to research, a concept that up until very recently was not well explicated. Social institutions are invisible, even though research calls them into action. Um, and, and the information that it generates is supposed to feed back into them and their ability to function. There's a keen awareness of risks inside research, but a far greater tolerance for unfound practice on a large scale outside of research. And no social imperative to close knowledge gaps between the health priorities of a community and the ability of the community's social or healthcare institutions to meet those needs or to rectify inequalities in the ability of those systems to address the health needs of the diverse populations that they serve. Okay, so, so that's the critical part. Um, now I want to talk about, I do want to defend a research imperative, but it's very different from the ones that we've seen before. So in the prior debate, um, this assumption that the common good is really the good of a collective, it's the good of society, where, where in several different ways that can be represented as something that's quite distinct from the good of the individual. Um, and then what you saw was, yeah, this the state has a right or this collective has a right to progress or no, the collective doesn't have a right to progress because the collective isn't really harmed by sickness, injury and disease. Only individuals are. So part of what I argue for in the book is that there's a, just a fundamentally different way of conceiving of the common good. So that rather than putting the, the collective on one side and the individual on the other and then debating, um, you know, whose interests are are uh, are paramount. We should see the common good, and I think there's also a very, I try to argue there's a long tradition for, for views like this. The common good is a set of what I call basic interests, a set of interests that all persons share in being able to develop and exercise the intellectual and effective and social and physical capabilities that they require to formulate, 
pursue and revise a meaningful life plan. So in that sense, you know, in a diverse, free, uh, open society, people will pursue a lot of different first order life plans. Right. They want to be musicians or scientists or, you know, or, you know, occupy a bunch of different um, occupations or pursue faith traditions and so on. Those are part of the first order conception of the good that they want to advance. And we they differ in very many ways as a result, but they share in common the uh, the what Rawls calls the highest order interest in being able to formulate, pursue and revise a life plan. And that is an interest that's common to all of the persons in such a community. So in a just social order. Institutions of society have to function in order to secure the common good in this new or in this other sense. Right. In other words, the basic institutions of society have to function to secure for each person their basic interests in being able to formulate, pursue and revise a life plan. And so basic interests now can be threatened by a wider range of things. Sickness, injury and disease threaten people's ability to uh, the, the cognitive, affective or physical abilities that they need to pursue some uh, reasonable life plan. So do poverty and ignorance, prejudice, animus and lots of other things. So for our purposes, I'll stick to sickness, injury and disease. But this is why, right, the, the effect of sickness, injury and disease on this shared interest and the, this shared interest as being sort of the focus of what a just society is supposed to help secure for individuals is what grounds now a notion uh, of justice that takes research away out of the sphere of a private activity and puts it in the sphere of social activity that produces a unique public good. So. This is a unique public good because research with humans is often the only way to generate the information that we need to bridge gaps between the ability of individuals to function in this basic way and the capacity of health related social systems, public health, individual health, uh, the close to client health system to function in ways that will safeguard and support and advance those those abilities of individuals effectively efficiently, but also equitably. So in order to be able to do that, in order for health systems to be able to effectively, efficiently and equitably advance the basic interests of people in those communities, we have to understand the etiology of disease. We have to understand the disease mechanisms so that we can intervene on it to try to prevent uh, the spread, to try to manage the uh, you know, disease spread or progression of disease or provide treatment to patients to either you know, cure them or you know, uh, mitigate um, you know, morbidity and mortality. So this is the, the, the first part of the social imperative, um, you know, that social institutions of a just state have to secure the life and liberty and welfare of their members. Fulfilling that function in the face of uncertainty requires the knowledge necessary to safeguard health and to make equitable, efficient and effective use of the wide range of social resources that go into um, creating the social systems that fulfill this function. And so, you know, a central claim of the book is that there's an imperative to conduct research that closes these knowledge gaps that will enable health systems to secure the basic interests of community members. So in that sense, for, for there is a sense in which I'm arguing for a claim that that um, fell out of fashion after uh, the work of the National Commission. But um, I want to be extremely clear. Um, lots of the people who flirt with this idea also fall into the very, um, you know, uh, dichotomy that McDermott postulated. And, and they come very close to basically saying, yes, it's so, you know, like, um, uh, you know, society can exact um, these tremendous, tremendous toll from individuals. And I want to say, no, this social imperative does not license domination. In a just social order, basic institutions of society must function to secure the common good, i.e. each person's basic interests. And so now we have to think of research not as a social role, but as a scheme of mutual cooperation that is just one element within this much larger social division of labor. So research is an activity that gets extended across time. It involves multiple stakeholders 
It calls into action various social institutions, whether they're funding institutions, regulatory institutions, healthcare providing institutions. And it also generates the information that feeds back into those institutions and shapes their ability to function. So the second part of the social imperative, so this isn't an external constraint on that first imperative. It's an implication, an internal implication of that imperative that understanding research as a social, as a scheme of social cooperation that must be organized on terms that respect the status of individuals as free and equal means that there's also an imperative to, sure, to ensure that it's a voluntary undertaking undertaken with free and informed consent in the same way that society requires the, the widespread participation of people who occupy many different social roles like um, uh, voluntary firefighters, paramedics and other people. Um, we want to organize the, the role of study participant in the same way, a voluntary uh, act, uh, pathway through which people can make a contribution to the common good. Um, Part of the way that we secure the credible assurance to those people that there won't be an arbitrary decision made against them in order to advance the common good, to use McDermott's phrase, um, is you have prospective review to eliminate unnecessary risk, to ensure an appropriate baseline of care is provided within medical research, and also have provisions that, that prohibit domination and abuse. So, so this point I was making Free societies require many social functions to fill in uh, important social obligations, right? We need teachers. We, we can't get rid of ignorance. We can't combat ignorance without teachers. We need physicians. We need researchers. We need volunteer firefighters. We need paramedics. We need all these people that provide important social services on which our health and welfare depend. And then what we do is we try to shape those social institutions so that individuals can see that social role as an avenue through which they can advance their own first order conception of the common good. Um, and as a way that in doing that, they can contribute to the common good. And so it's a direct implication of this way of thinking about the research imperative. The research participation has to be organized research yeah, on this same, um, you know, uh, idea. Shape the role of research participation as something where people can see it as an avenue to contribute to the common good without necessarily making themselves vulnerable to the kind of domination uh, and abuse that uh, McDermott thought was uh, essential and inevitable. Um, it's true there are a lot of thorny issues in research where you might say, um, well, you know, uh, what does that mean in terms of the way we think about research risk? I'm not going to go into that here. So there are two long chapters in the book. But, you know, I, I argue in the book that, um, you know, there's uh, for a framework for evaluating risk that satisfies a bunch of really uh, stringent ethical principles that can ensure social value, equal concern for individuals, uh, equal concern for the welfare of people inside and outside of these trials and a prohibition against impermissible gambles um, where uh, basically impermissible gambles are the sort of thing where you say, if I'm not allowed to do something directly to you, um, I shouldn't be able to make it permissible for me to do that by just reducing the probability that the same outcome would occur to you. Okay, so um, I'm almost done, and now we, we can we can talk about, um, you know, we, we have a, a larger conversation. But I wanted to say something about what the implications are then, you know, for, for the field. Um, so if you think about international research, for, as an example now, uh, these common requirements from SIOM's guidelines that really didn't have a clear normative foundation now have a much more solid foundation. Uh, the responsiveness requirement is itself a direct requirement of justice. It, you Research must be responsive to the health needs and priorities of host populations to ensure that research activities produce the knowledge that is needed to enhance the ability of the institutions in those communities to understand and address the health needs of the people who live in those communities, because they have a fundamental moral claim on the basic institutions of their society, that they should work to advance their fundamental interests in being able to pursue uh, a reasonable life plan. The requirement to provide an adequate standard of care to respect participants as free and equal 
They have to be guaranteed a level of care that doesn't fall below what can be attained and sustained for them uh, within the set of basic institutions that provide uh, social services to everyone in their community. And the requirement for post-trial access is just an implication that if you generate new knowledge, it's not going to safeguard the health of anyone unless it is integrated into the social systems that have as their social function uh, safeguarding the health and welfare of people. Um, another implication of this view is that the IRB triangle and the traditional view that like people, scholars and research ethics are primarily speaking to researchers or IRB members, um, that we have to we have to broaden the set of stakeholders that we are talking to because we have to broaden what you know the the our our the realization that many different stakeholders make decisions upstream of IRB review and downstream of study um, study conduct and study completion that affect responsiveness uh, you know and and the availability of the the knowledge and the interventions that are developed within research so um, funders and sponsors eros and researchers maybe they're more typical um, you know and host communities and study participants regulators and IRB members but, you know, lawmakers set the incentives um, in terms of patent law, patent protection, IP protection uh, that incentivize private and public actors to invest their time, energy and resources in, in, in determine which questions um, and where they, they put their time, energy and resources. So lawmakers and policymakers have to be become sort of a, a fundamental interlocutor for research ethics when it comes to thinking about what the priority research questions ought to be. Journal editors and professional societies, health systems, clinicians, uh, patients, and future researchers. I mean, part of the reason for ensuring the quality of scientific research is not about the risks that poor quality research might impose on study participants. You, that's sort of how you have to funnel and frame um, issues about uh, scientific quality uh, in the sort of the current IR, uh, research ethics ecosystem. But, you know, the research, the, the, the information that studies produce is consumed by a wide range of stakeholders, health systems, clinicians, and future researchers. And so they rely on that, the quality of that evidence in order to fulfill social obligations that they have. So we have to move also away from a protectionist view uh, where the primary function of, of research ethics is protectionism um, to one where the idea is the primary view of research ethics is to ensure that this scheme of social cooperation it cannot be co-opted by any particular stakeholder to advance their narrow parochial interests at the expense of the common good. So a lot of stakeholders in, in, in research engage partly to advance parochial interests, profit, promotion, access to novel treatments, the prestige of being a research institution. Research ethics should work to constrain and align these interests as much as possible with the common good. And I've got a, a long chapter about how um, framing the IRB review in protectionist terms disconnects it from some of its actual important functions where it really does work to ensure that the cooperation among these different stakeholders is, is aligned with producing higher quality research. Uh, as well as protecting the interests of study participants. Um, you know, FDA or EMA or, you know, other regular, you know, other institutions that set regulatory standards for safety and efficacy, choice of endpoint in a trial, the study design. A lot of these questions now um, pose these questions beyond the confines of the single protocol to the IRB. So um, Jonathan Kimmelman and then Jonathan Kimmelman and I have together you know, have done research on portfolio level questions, questions that aren't just about individual study protocols, but whole sets of study protocols. Well, those things become very salient in this wider formulation, precisely because they implicate the efficiency with which research uses scarce resources, including how many people are required in order to answer a question, 
the bandwidth of information that research produces about a question and whether that which stakeholders that information is really useful for. And then finally, as I said, law and policymakers uh, need to be a, a, a fundamental focus, both in terms of how they set uh, domestic research priorities and how we engage in our research, our collaborative research abroad. And I think, you know, we're vaccine equity and the fundamental problems that we're having right now around vaccine equity, you know, sort of shine a light on how um, this whole ecosystem of we had to we had to answer a novel question. We generated now a new resource. And now we've got to carry out the difficult work of equity of making that resource available to all of the communities that require it in order to secure the basic interests of their uh, community members. So in conclusion, you know, I argue in the critical part of the book that the boundaries of research ethics are arbitrarily narrow. A bunch of current requirements seem arbitrary and self-defeating. Uh, there are a whole raft of stakeholders who exert concrete and real influence on the way research is done, uh, but who are basically invisible and whose conduct is invisible within orthodox research ethics. And that the relationship of research to important social institutions and the moral responsibility of those institutions is far less visible than it ought to be. In, in place of this, I offer a much broader conception of research as a social activity spread across time involving multiple stakeholders. That's one element within a much larger division of social labor. In this position, issues of justice become central. Some of the existing requirements uh, that sort of are put forward without solid justifications are given a much more coherent foundation. The full range of ethical issues now that are salient to the conduct of research can be framed while considering the duties of a much more comprehensive set of stakeholders. Um, the dependence and the influence of important social institutions on research is central. And it allows us to provide, get rid of the asymmetry so that we can frame the harms of unwarranted diversity of health practices uh, as salient as the risks that uh, are carried out in research, where we can see one of the fundamental goals of research is to address unwarranted diversity as a kind of uncertainty that we want to eliminate in order to create institutions that more effectively and efficiently and equity, uh, equitably advance the the basic interests of the people who rely on them to function. Okay, so thanks very much. And as I said, the, the book is free and open access from Oxford University Press, and I am really looking forward to our conversation.